Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And I'm Mark. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville, except sometimes we go off on side missions where we talk about other Orville-related things. Today, we'll be discussing the graphic novel New Beginnings, which was written by David A. Goodman, with art by David Cabeza and Michael Atia. There are no new reviews this week, but if you would like us to read one of your reviews on an upcoming episode, all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and write a review below. You can email us by sending an email to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. You can follow us on Twitter at quantumdrivepod. You can join the Discord to chat with us about the show and the podcast at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. And if you'd like access to Mark's alternate one-sentence reviews, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. As we start to get into the episode this week, we're going to do something a little bit differently because we're working in a different medium this time. So uh, we have the graphic novel New Beginnings in front of us. We've already read it, of course. And we have our discussion kind of split up into the two sub episodes that they have inside of the book. So there's the New Beginnings episode and there's also the Word of Avis. So if we're looking at New Beginnings on their way to a tactical conference on Outpost 23, Ed Mercer and Gordon Malloy investigate a distress signal from a century old buoy from the lost planetary union ship, the battleship Burton. Meanwhile, Commander Grayson tries to mediate when Bordis insists on enrolling Topa into school despite him being only eight months old. It's here that she meets Cassius and the two begin dating. While investigating the fate of the Burton, Ed and Gordon find its remains have crash-landed on a nearby planet. Leakage from the core has eradicated most of the life on the planet, except for a race of aliens called the Chog, who use the Burton synthesizers for food. When the Orville arrives to rescue Ed and Gordon, they make a plan to terraform the planet to fix the problems caused by the Burton's crash. Did anyone else read all of this in the characters' voices, or was that just me? Oh, totally. I think it's the only way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I literally read every single line as the characters, and like that's how I heard it in my head, and I thought that was kind of cool, because it made it seem like I was actually watching an episode versus reading. Yeah, I like the fact that because we've seen so much of the show, as I'm looking through it, even though the art is fantastic, mm-hmm. as I look through, I kind of picture the episode playing out in live action. For sure. And then their their voices having the kind of inflections and the way they deliver things in the way that they would on the show, for sure. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was kind of funny thinking about the voices was, uh, is it Cassius? That's mm-hmm. how you say his name? <laughs> I know, we always have to stop and remind ourselves. Well, it was so funny because I had like two brains about going, okay, I've already seen season two, but what if I hadn't? And right. I like was reading this just with season one in mind, you don't know how to pronounce his name. And so then you go into season two and all the jokes about like Cassius versus Cassius and stuff. I was like, that was kind of funny. If this had come first, I wonder if there would have been people that went into season two thinking it was Cassius or something like that. And then they get kind of hit by that joke in the same way that the audience does. Now this came out between season one and two. This came out after season two had already wrapped or was concluding. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is going back in time as will. Uh, I know they're working on season two point five. And that is coming out definitely after season two as well. So, yeah, this was created afterwards. 
And I know um, some of the intent of it was to do things that they could do in the book that might not have worked on television. That is what a little bit of David Goodman said. He also had mentioned that they were trying to address some of the holes that were left over. And there were certain plot points or certain things in canon. Uh, they were trying to fix some of our head canoning. Yeah, they were. Honestly, it it did feel like they're kind of missing episodes between season one and two. Mm-hmm. And it answered a lot of questions that you and I have tried to ask ourselves and head canon and... Now we know how Ca- now Cassius Cassius Cassius. <laughs> it's better that we always have to stop and think. Yeah, Cassius. Like now we know how they met, and also the stuff with Topa, mm-hmm. how Topa ages. Because you and I have talked about that a lot, Rob. Where yep. it's like he was just a baby, and now he's like a seven-year-old. So I enjoyed that those pieces had been filled in for me in the New Beginnings book. Yeah, in the book they say he's only eight months old, mm-hmm. and yet he's, what, like seven years old in human terms, something around that? Yeah. Yeah, he looks like he's in second grade or first grade or the equivalent, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Mark? Something like that. I don't have the book in front of me. I let you borrow it. <laughs> oh my God. I know. We only, Mark and I are sharing a book, and he's in another room recording his part, and I'm looking at the book, and so, sorry, Mark. That's okay. (laughs) One of the things that you brought up that I thought was really cool that they did involving like not things in the book that they couldn't necessarily do in the show. Mm -hmm. I thought the use of the chog or the chogs was pretty cool because that could come off as really hokey with like CGI or something. Absolutely. Yeah. But in a comic, it played out really well and just seemed normal. Even if they could do it and make it look realistic, that's an expensive alien race to like yeah. deal with, especially a lot of them. Yeah. I'm. Do we think that they were there were humans on this planet first and that they went extinct? I don't and then the, think they were humans necessarily. I think okay. if, if I had to guess, I would say that the Chog were the predominant race on this planet regardless. Mm-hmm. But they were the only ones that survived the the core leak. They were the only ones that could withstand it. That makes sense, because I, I did enjoy the Chog. They just seemed like kind of an uninformed race that is doing their best. So they were very aggressive about them going back into the ship or anywhere in the ship that was not the food area. I can imagine that if someone's messing with your lifeline, which this essentially was, they have no other source of food outside of the synthesizers. So yeah, yeah if someone was messing with your lifeline, I can imagine they would get pretty uppity. Yeah, They had little guards blocking the door which they're pretty cute aliens too so it's hard to be like oh they're so intimidating i'm like they're little penguin people and (laughs) it was i don't know it's a neat race to be introduced to and that's what i liked about these books as well as you got to see some alien races that you don't see on the show or get to explore Mm -hmm. on the show so it, it expands the lore in the world a lot yeah one of the things um that i thought was pretty cool about i guess the comic aspect of everything mm-hmm. um i can't remember who did the art for it maybe uh david cabeza yeah so david cabeza i think he does such a good job with writing action like just i know it's a little bit off topic but they're one of the things i noticed kind of throughout both or all four books however you want to look at mm-hmm. it there are not a lot of action lines Like, you know, whereas you may have someone jumping and you see a little kind of curved line or something like boing, there's just not a lot of that throughout. And I think it's because his art 
just displays action in such a good way. Mm. I thought of that because like Katie was mentioning the chogs not being too intimidating, but then they start throwing rocks when they gang up. So that could be a problem. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm even just flipping through real quick right now. And I didn't notice it when I was looking through at the time. But there's like a subtle line here and there, but there's nothing mm-hmm. extreme that screams out. This is a hurling motion, you know? Right. Yeah, the mannerisms and everything kind of capture all that very, very well. Yeah, the art was pretty impressive and capturing the likeness of all of the characters, too. Mm-hmm. Mark reads a lot of graphic novels, and I've seen the art in some of them, and it's a lot more abstract, and this felt more realistic. And, I mean, the likeness of all of the characters, even on the cover, is very impressive. And then mm-hmm. throughout the book, it's, mm-hmm. like, easy to tell who's who, and I think they convey... The artist conveyed emotion very well in this book, and... I don't read graphic novels super frequently, and I actually really enjoyed this one Mm. from the art to the writing style. So I feel like they did something right. And Mark's read a lot of these. So he read it before I did. And he's like, I really liked that. (laughs) So That's how I knew that. I was like, okay, that means that they, they did good work on this, too. Yeah, it's definitely done very, very well. Timeline wise, uh, I know this takes place. It's a few weeks after Mad Idolatry, after that story. And it's about a month before Jaloja happens. Hmm. And it's like a three-day span or something. It's not super... I know, it's not a super long time frame that they're on the planet with the Chog. Right, yeah. Yeah. It feels like an episode, though, the way that the arc goes, and then they kind of wrap it up at the end. Do we think, because I had this thought right away, do we think that it being called the Battleship Burton is a reference to LeVar Burton? Ooh. Could be. That was my suspicion. I don't know if it's accurate or not, and I couldn't find any verification of that, but that's immediately where my brain went. I wonder if it's that or if there's an author out there that's like a famous, you know, like Orville. Mm. Well, I always think Orville Redenbacher, but I know that that's not. (laughs) That's popcorn. (laughs) But maybe it could be. I would love that if it was tied to LeVar Burton as like a nod to him, especially Mm. because of the Star Trek ties they always weave in. How did we feel about the beginning of Kelly and Cassius's relationship? It was a little fast. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it was a good like, you know, oh man, they could never be together because they butt heads so hard. But then there's that whole sequence where they're in the mess hall and she goes into the long spiel about, well, I'm sure you're really nice and, you know, you're attractive, but I just can't get involved. And then it's just kind of like, yeah, okay, but maybe they're just going to do it. So it was, it was a little rushed, but at the same time, I think it felt okay knowing where things went after that, yeah. I guess. And Alara put the seed in her brain a little bit too, yeah, which is why she kind of brought that up in the mess hall really quick. Like she started thinking that direction and she might not have if Alara hadn't brought that up. Yeah. I guess it tied into the show well because their relationship on the show was very much combative Mm. so it kind of it felt like as they were nearing the end of their relationship it was more they were more tolerant of each other or kelly was more tolerant of cassius than he was of her it it felt like that line kind of kept going through even on the episodes that Mm. cassius was in so i I believed that they argued right out the gate and yeah i mean it was a little weird that kelly was like oh it's this and i don't know that we could date and blah 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 but they ended up dating. So yeah. it's like, it, though it was kind of weird. Like if someone said that to me and like went into a whole thing and be like, okay, well, I'll just go now. I don't know that I'd want to like sit down and hang out. Well, I think so. Alara planting the seed might have been the start of everything because it's what got Kelly thinking in that direction. 
that Classic led to Kelly bringing it up. And then Cassius might not have even been considering it, too, even though he sound, he seemed attracted to her at that point, just based yeah. on the way he was acting. But her bringing it up kind of opened the door for him to even have that as an open dialogue at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think Alara did bring up a good point of just saying, hey, you're going to be on this ship for a while, I assume. And so do you just want to, I, she said, what, do you want to be celibate that whole time? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, which is like, I guess, the quote unquote, a crude way, but classified, uh, I don't know, classified. <laughs> but yeah, that was enough for her to kind of go, yeah, all right, may- maybe you're right. The one part I thought was a little bit out of character for Cassius is when Kelly approaches him and brings up Topa being in the class at all, and he flips out, Yeah, which seemed way out of character for him. But I wonder if, like, if we think about the way that their relationship ended, I think Cassius had some sort of inferiority complex about being a teacher in general, because that comes up when they have that discussion near the end of their relationship. And maybe someone in command coming in and telling him anything about how to run his classroom is immediately like this harsh response from him. Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. That's why I didn't like Cassius. He didn't. He was like, no, I can't be a teacher. You just think we're I'm kidding. I don't I don't really care that much about it. I kind of wonder if Clyden was getting in his grill though too for quite a while about topa and if anybody we all know clyden at this point mm-hmm. he's kind of awful um but <laughs> he was probably getting in cash's face like why my son deserves to be in here and maybe they had been or Cassius had been dealing with that for a long time that now kelly a commanding officer is coming in like nope, yeah topa gets to go to your class i don't care what you say they do kind of mention that this is not the first time he's been approached it's why they went to Kelly uh-huh. or why Bordis went to Kelly because they'd been trying to get Topa in this class. It does seem weird though. Cause Cassius to me does come off as a good teacher from what we saw about him. Right. So to have this kind of response, instead of being like, well, let me meet the kid. Like, why not take that approach? If they're trying to explain to him, Hey, Mocklins are different. They develop differently. Just meet him. He would have been like, Oh yeah, totally. Like why? It's a very weird pushback moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something to, well, this is like the B-plot in some yeah. ways, because we get to see how Cassius and Kelly get to get to meet and get together. But it also explained a lot about Mocklins, too, which I always like learning about the Mocklins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, but, Fortis is still my favorite. Even throughout these, these two stories, I was like, oh, Fortis yeah. is just great. <laughs> that was one of the things the artist did, too. There's just mannerisms that the actors do that he captured in this book mm. that made feel just like instead of watching an episode you're reading it but i think that made it a really easy book to read because of that if you're not super into graphic novels or anything if you are a fan of the orville you will like this book yeah i think this is a great starting place for people to get into graphic novels for sure but i agree one of my favorites was um gordon in both the writing and facial expressions and things. Mm -hmm. I just thought that they captured Gordon so perfectly in so many ways, like his little jokes and things like that. And um, like Katie said, Bordis, 
he just has some of the most dry lines. Like he really doesn't talk that much throughout all the stories, mm-hmm. but he just has some really dry delivery things that were awesome one liners and still gets the humor across. And yeah, they yeah. it's so well written. How do we feel then about the A plot? They go down the planet, they find the Burton. They learn that it's there because it's the result of a war. There was an ambush and the ship's been here for quite a while. And then the last remaining ensign had programmed the core to just give them the food synthesizers as well as keeping all the debris up in the orbit by having that blaster to kind of take care of it. And then the Orville saves them. So I kind of thought, I guess some of my big takeaways or whatever from Mm -hmm. the a plot i thought ensign hodges was like everything the planetary union strives to be so you know he made a mistake or they i guess they didn't necessarily make a mistake but other people suffered because of their actions with war but then he did everything he could possibly do to make sure that it wasn't necessarily a permanent fix, but that he would leave things not quite as bad as they would have been if mm-hmm. he had just gone, well, this sucks. I guess I'm going to die the end. Yeah. And so I thought he was a great character, even though it was just like a one little message kind of off to the side and stuff for one scene. There are times where where, where I think the story works and it's fine in comic book form that scene of his recording I would have really liked to see in live action because I think that could have been a very powerful like delivery of that monologue. Yeah, for sure. I almost feel in a way that the A plot was a means to an end for the Kelly-Ed dynamic Mm -hmm. just so that we could get that, oh, he left in a huff and then this scary situation happened so that they could both realize, well, I still care. Like, I'm sorry that we've been cranky with each other kind of thing. Yeah. So in some ways, I think that throughout the whole story, they kept bringing up or Kelly would say, oh, why is stuff weird with Ed? And then Gordon and Ed talking in the shuttle about Kelly and stuff. I think that, yeah, I think that the real A plot was the Ed and Kelly thing. In a way, it kind of was like they had that moment where Ed is like, oh, I wish Kelly was here. And Kelly's like, oh, I wish Ed was here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is a continuing thread between them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the A plot, a lot of stuff happens. but and Gordon don't really do anything like they discover the burden. They snoop mm-hmm. around. They find the recording. The Orville comes and fixes everything. Yeah. So it's not a crazy mystery. Like they just kind of stumble upon the answer. And then the answer is wrapped up, not by any like creative ingenuity or anything. It's just kind of like, OK, the Orville shows up and we're going to call the union. They'll terraform the planet. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Problem yeah. solved. Yeah, it was very much a fast ending that's why I feel like the Ed and Kelly thing was the main A plot. And then because it was such a throwaway at the end to be like, oh, they'll just terraform the planet for three years. It'll be fine. Yeah. But it does, like Mark, you were saying, it does kind of show the intent or like the best part of the union through Ensign Hodges for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things with the A plot, too, because that was more, I felt like more spacey, I guess, like where you would have gotten say space porn or just some of the cool things and since you don't necessarily get like special effects shots Mm -hmm. one of the things that i thought was interesting thinking about it in comic form is a lot of times you'll have big reveals on like a page turn or you'll have a two-page spread where there's this just amazing big artwork thing 
And from what I found in both books together, both stories, there's only one two page spread and it wasn't used for that. Like yeah. it was when uh, Gordon and Ed go into the Burton and they're kind of snooping around trying to find stuff. And I remember because I had the same issue, Katie had said to me, like, oh, I read those two pages wrong because it's spread across two. So you're supposed to read all the way across. Go I back. did the same. And I did the same thing. But when I looked back at it, I thought that even though it wasn't a big kapow, boom, space kind of thing, it was a really good use of time in space. Mm-hmm. Because if you read it, uh, you know, it's all one image with a couple little boxes but you can see the passing of time as they're exploring this ship. Yeah. And I thought that was such a cool use. And then I think on the page turn or something is when they get that message from Ensign Hodges. And so I just thought that was a cool use, even though the first time around, I guess I didn't get it and didn't track too well with it. Mm. But but it was also interesting that I didn't see any turn the page and the orville <laughs> that <laughs> yeah yeah stuff. yeah it's not like a crazy action episode which is yeah. fine like in a comic book you yeah. don't need that it's nice to just kind of have those little dialogue moments yeah anything else about that one before we take a look at the second story i will I say liked my, it. i oh. liked it too sorry yeah <laughs> there you I'm go tr- i'm trying not to interrupt i'm sorry i'm excited because I'm a fan of the show, <laughs> of this show that that I am on right now. Um, oh. <laughs> and the Orville, too. But I, I like the podcast. <laughs> but um, No, the only gripe I had about truly this story, and it's a comic thing, was that they used the asterisk in like one of the first about 10 pages or so. And it says as referenced in mad idolatry or something along those lines yeah they they talk about the tv show and i i kind of went i don't feel like they needed that and that for some reason really bothers me in comics cuz it's kind of like a feels like a 70s or 80s thing where it's like eh, we don't have either the money to draw it or you know the desire to tell it through the imagery and the story so yep. we'll just put a little blurb about here that's what happened. It still happens in modern comics, but it is kind of immersion breaking. Yeah. But other, I mean, truly, that's like my only really nitpicky. Oh, I wish they hadn't done it. But otherwise, like I was smiling from the beginning to the end. Okay. The word of Avis. The Orville intercepts a team of Union xenoanthropologists headed for Krill Space. The scientists claim they wanted to go to Mizar 2 and faulty navigation equipment took them off course, but investigations reveal them to be worshippers of Avis. Gordon discovers a malicious program that they uploaded to the Orville computers, but not before it takes them 35 light years into Krill territory. Using the Calavon device to disguise themselves as a Krill destroyer, they start making their way back to Union space. On a real Krill ship that intercepts them, a mysterious advisor suggests to its captain to scan the Orvo with neutron radiation, which exposes its true identity. Fleeing to a nearby asteroid, the crew tricks the scientists into unlocking their transport's computer, and they once again use the holographic generator to make the transport look like the Orville. Distracted by the decoy, the Orville returns safely to Union space, and the mysterious advisor reveals herself to be Talea. Wow. 
lot of stuff happening in this one. Yeah. This one is more <laughs> twist and turny yeah. than the first one. And we get a character that uh, has a history with John, at least in some capacity. Yeah. And this is a very John-centered episode. Mm -hmm. Also, because I think it's the most important thing to discuss about this, um, Lieutenant Dan shows up. Yeah, Lieutenant Dan shows up. And guess what? <laughs> He's just as annoying in comic book form. I love Lieutenant Dan. Oh, Rob. I was actually reading it on the couch, and I looked over at Mark, and I said, Rob's going to hate that. <laughs> So I didn't realize Dan was spelled with two N's oh, really? until I read this. Yeah. And so when I looked at that, I went, oh, it's even more Dan to love. Because <laughs> it's <laughs> one more N. Uh-huh. There's one more letter. Oh, boy. I, I did love that he was like, I think the captain should know that I was the one that picked up on the weird frequency. Yeah. Like that, that made, <laughs> if you all could see Rob's face There's right There's a now. lot of Dan being Dan in this one. That's I, <laughs> I actually wrote a note saying, I think that the captain should know that Dan found it. <laughs> and we get some Yafit in this one, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love some Yafit. I mean, can't complain. So you seem like you're okay. There's no no hesitation about the Yafit from you. I don't mind Yafit. I like Yafit. <laughs> Just that Lieutenant Dan. Just that Lieutenant Dan. So something that I thought was crazy, because I read this twice, because mm -hmm. I liked it so much and I gave Katie the book. But anyway, the first time I read it, I didn't notice this. The second time, the opening simulator scene mm -hmm. seems very much just kind of like, oh, it's funny simulator. You know, it's John and Gordon. They kill a bunch of people. But it explains the theme of the episode or the story so well. Mm -hmm. And the first time I just kind of glossed over it, went, oh, okay. And the second time I went, oh my gosh. That is such an amazing introduction, but still having the comedy and all that. Yeah, and they have it's it's a religious crusade that's happening at the beginning, which is exactly what's happening in the story as we go through it. Yeah, yeah, they do a good job about have I mean on the show and then including it in the book nuances that are very well thought out so that people do pick up on them. I mean, even if you don't, you still enjoy it, but the people who do pick up on it, it's like an extra like, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Yeah. Like Dan being in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking about what, because there's so much going on in this one. Yeah. This one had a really cool, I like this one a little bit better. Can I say that now? I yeah. did too, honestly. I was more like, what's going to happen? Because, I mean, there's so it's high stakes whenever the krill are involved. Mm -hmm. And then they're like fanatical, like zealots. Is zealot the right word yeah, for this? Yeah, I think so. And the fact that one of them has a tie from the past to John complicates things, obviously. But this also felt like an episode watching, but I, I think this one felt a little more action-packed and a little more high stakes mm -hmm. and stressful, which made me a lot more invested in it. Yeah, I agree. There was, And the mystery, was, I think, was better. Mm -hmm. because and Talia shows up and Talia too. shows up there were things in this that I definitely did not see coming like yeah I didn't necessarily see in the first one that they would fix everything by terraforming and that would be the solution but like the the mystery and the twists in this one are so much better obviously there was something going on we knew it wasn't the navigational computers that were not going the right way but I would have never guessed it was because they were all like avis converts yeah no i don't think well when they sat down with gordon in the cafeteria and they were like tell us about the 
ceremony and like they were super weird about it <laughs> you can even tell from the art you're just like uncomfortable by how they're portrayed yeah you can almost feel like something off about these people it's another scene i would have loved to see played out in live action it reminded me a little bit of blood of patriots where gordon's friend was kind of behaving off the whole time and i feel like that's mm-hmm. the kind of performance we would have gotten out of them yeah i agree Something I found interesting about the Avisers, that's what I call them, (laughs) Avisers, was that they, in theory, actually had all the information about the religion. Mm -hmm. Because at first, you know, they kind of think and even imply that maybe they just sort of cherry picked things from the religion like a lot of people do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, say, no, we actually like met with Talea and she filled in all the gaps because mm. we didn't have all the information from the photos that Ed and Gordon sent back from the book of Avis or whatever it was called. The Ancana. Ancana, that's it. I like the book of Avis, but yeah, the Ancana <laughs> The book of Avis is where you actually rent the car from and then the Ancana is the religion. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. I did think it was interesting that they made Celeste such a va-va-voom kind of lady yeah it felt a little like it felt off for the comic because nobody else was portrayed in that way Mm -hmm. where it was almost i don't know she just she's obviously a very beautiful woman but i just thought it was interesting that they accentuated her bosoms (laughs) is that a thing i can say (laughs) i think they were trying to make someone to equal john Yeah. yeah i could see that it just that felt a little off to me just because like nobody else in it was like sensually drawn except her Mm. I mean, John wasn't centrally drawn, like centrally <laughs> drawn. So that's true. I just noticed that it just that stuck out to me. Yeah, I noticed it, too. Honestly, I was curious about a few things. One being how would Talia know how to penetrate the holographic generator with a certain type of scan like that all happened way before her. I feel like they they made some reference, uh, Ed and Gordon, to their disguise is failing because of something like that on the ship. Mm-hmm. Like there was an excess of something in the air. Oh yeah, they may have. Yeah. And then I think, so then I think Talea was that figure lurking in the shadows on the Krill ship mm-hmm. and was just kind of like, Hey, try this because last time they almost got away with it too. Yeah, I can. Okay. There's a little headcanon fix right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But also from a storytelling perspective, I didn't love that. Like, I honestly don't think they needed Talia in the story. Sure, it was nice to have that gap filled in as far as like, oh, this is when she escaped and went back because we didn't get that information in the show at all. And that's fine. But like, she's there to break the first use of the holographic generator I feel like using it to solve two problems in the episode is a little too much as well. Like if they had not done it the first time and they just started heading back to Union Space and they were not disguised and then the Krill ship sees them. So they flee and then are like, oh, wait, we have that holographic generator. Then they're using it once because when they use it the second time, it does make the Krill look extra dumb that they wouldn't even bother to try scanning the decoy when they've already been fooled once. That is true. Mm. Also, I it kind of felt off that Talia was even in this. It was almost like, what's a way that we could just fit her in? She felt a little shoehorned in, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 
I think it would have been better if she was just on the ship in the darkness instead of being like, she filled in all the gaps for the Book of Avis. Mm -hmm. And like, what are the chances of that really happening? Yeah. It's, and, and why would she be that cooperative? Granted, yeah. if, if they were converts, would Talaya actually see them as, I mean, maybe she was bored in her cell and was like, well, I have nothing else to do. But I feel like she would not even give them that kind of information or allow them to be on that level in her eyes because the krill see themselves as the superior race mm -hmm. why would they humor anyone else that was thinking they'd be like no you can't subscribe to our god avis is not for you i feel like that's the kind of attitude that the krill would have about it and that's kind of what i felt as well like i felt like it it didn't make sense for talaya to give them the blanks yeah and i felt a little like yeah you know i guess maybe they forced her to at the same time, I don't think that was the other thing, though. She could have, quote unquote, filled in the blanks, but not given them the right information. She may have. Yeah. We don't even know that. Mm -hmm. uh, the fanatics, the scientists slash fanatics, they were interesting. And I felt very kind of like the same kind of extra characters you would see in one episode of Star Trek TNG, because they did kind of all start with that kind of heightened fanaticism. And then as the episode went along, three of them were like, oh, we can't go that far. And of course, there's always one person that's like the crazy fanatic that just has to yeah. go above and beyond. Yeah. That was very reminiscent of a lot of TNG episodes, I think. Yeah, I guess another thing that I kind of had an issue with was what are the chances that Talaya would also be on one of those Krill ships? And they came across the Orville with the fanatics on board like that is a lot of oh narrative coincidence yeah are there like only 50 krill and she's one of them and so that would explain it but it just <laughs> some of that stuff like if you don't think about it too hard it doesn't ruin the story but if you think about it too hard it can start to unravel stuff for me so mm. i think if they had left to out i wouldn't have any of those qualms with it i agree well i kind of i always felt like i really liked to character but i always felt kind of like even with the show that she went from school teacher to super mega spy, like ultimate soldier in a really short, fast time. That's true. And yeah. even even this doesn't really make me feel any different. Mm -hmm. It seems like it happened even faster than I realized. And I don't know. Yeah, no, you're right. That's I, I don't know what kind of schooling they get. Maybe their average school teacher does have a certain level of like, deception training and all that. i don't know I don't, maybe that's what they're teaching the kids in school too because the krill yeah. are just that type of race but yeah it is it is a little strange that she would make that kind of a leap but overall like like you said katie this story for me is a little bit better than the first one it just felt it had more weight there was more going on the twists and turns were more interesting i was surprised more than I was in the first one. So yeah, I definitely felt the the second one was the stronger of the two. I would have liked to see the second one in live action very much. Yeah, I would watch both of them mm. in live action. Mm -hmm. I think the second one almost seemed as though it could have just been an episode, mm -hmm. you know, without any limitations on CGI and chogs and all that stuff. Like, yeah. it just seemed like, oh, this could have literally just been something they made. Yeah. So I'm excited they're making more of these because I will definitely read them. Absolutely. Same. Uh, one more thing, just for people that are wondering in case there are any things that come up in the future that might be inconsistent with the comics. According to David Goodman, 
the comic is meant to have soft canonical value, which is a term I didn't know existed. Soft oh, canon. No. Uh, (laughs) soft canonical value meaning that facts introduced in the comic books establish the show's canon unless contradicted by the tv episodes so anything happening in these can be taken as canon but if we see something in the tv shows in the future that contradicts something or if we notice something in the existing episodes that contradict the comics the tv show takes precedence canonically I guess that, that that kind of feels like a if we change our minds, yeah. just go with what we put on the TV show. I I get it, but I like I would I would prefer if it was just no. This is the lore. Yeah. This is Bible <laughs> for Orville. But I I can see that because it gives them more freedom to do what they want. Also, by moving to Hulu, mm-hmm. they can now. I'm assuming have a better budget. They can do some different things they couldn't do before. So maybe we'll see the chog appear. <laughs> maybe the chog are coming in next season. So something that maybe we'll see on Hulu that this this caught me really off guard in the second one was uh, I, I'll mm. let you either censor it or I can censor myself. But the swear. When, yeah, Gordon just drops the f bomb yep. in the middle of it. I kind of went whoa. Like it, it caught me really off guard just because mm-hmm. they don't even like in the books, they aren't even really swearing, like saying the PG-13 swears or whatever. Yeah. And then I just went, holy cow. So maybe on Hulu, they're going to swear it up. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think they're going to go crazy, but they, they definitely it. have the ability to. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if we heard one or two. Yeah, I think it would be too shocking if they went in Game of Thrones yeah. like on us and it was just like, oh my God, there's boobs and cursing all the time. Like, I don't think that I think they'll tastefully add things in Agreed. if I'm to make a guess. Yeah, yeah. Use them to proper effect. Mm-hmm. Anything else about the second story before we uh, wrap up the episode? Hail Avis? I don't know. <laughs> Is it Hail Avis? I don't know if that's how it works, but I guess that's what we're going with now. Hail Avis! Praise Avis! <laughs> Praise, Praise Avis! Uh, well, while we've reached the end of all of the currently released content for the Orville, this is not the end of the podcast by any means. We absolutely plan on returning for Season 3, and hopefully we'll have some more episodes for you between now and then. They just might not be on our usual release schedule of every other week. Uh, In the meantime, I suggest checking out the other podcasts on the Geek Generation Network, which you can get by going to thegeekgeneration.com slash network. You can also get many hours of bonus podcasts by backing our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Katie, there's a place that they can visit you in the meantime as well, isn't there? Yeah, if you want to come hang out with me on Twitch, I live stream over there. It's just Katie Peters Plays. Or if you want to talk to me on Twitter, it's Play Katie Play. Because Katie Peter's place was too long. So you can do that. And also, I mean, you might as well say it. There might be a a little sneaky podcast for me coming out soon. So keep your ears peeled for that. There might be. And Mark, thank you for joining us for this one. It's your first episode long appearance. Oh, this is so fun. You can also catch me on Katie Peter's plays at twitch.tv. I am sometime a disembodied arm that hands her coffee and food. <laughs> this is it's true. true. <laughs> it keeps me alive most of the time on my stream. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, for everyone listening, thank you for taking the journey with us up to this point, And we will see you in the future. 
Quantum Drive is a production of the Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on the Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at KatiePetersPlays, and Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in In the the future. future.